Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You've been gadding around. Well, we might just cut and paste. I say this every time. You say <laughs> you've been gadding around. I say yes, I have. We could just record this and play it out, save ourselves a few yeah, minutes, we could. couldn't we? But which place have you been gadding about to this time, Alex? I've been to the Cambridge Literary Festival and had a really, really nice time talking to writers and indeed talking to the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize, Catherine Rundle, whose interview you'll be hearing in a little while, listeners. And can we say, first of all, we, we, we say wonderful, well done to Catherine Rundle, but can we also say terrifically well done to ourselves? Are we allowed to do this? Terrifically well done to ourselves, yeah, more than to Catherine Rundle. Because... We talked about her last week, didn't we, and how great she was and how great the book was and all of that. And, I, you know, I'd like to feel that we had a hand in the karma. It's beyond doubt, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think we did. Did she thank you? She must have forgotten, probably. <laughs> I think she possibly, in the run-up to the Bailey Gifford Prize, was not listening to last week's TLS podcast. Oh, OK. You will have noticed, listeners, that we are saying Catherine Rundle. Because I asked her, I said, are you Rundle or Rundell? And she said, long ago, it is a sort of descendant, the name, it's a corruption of the French, Irondelle, Swallow, which is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful name. I'm now eternally jealous of that name. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? Imagine being called that. John Donne would approve, wouldn't he? He would approve. And, you know, she's written books about nature and she's amazing. But Lucy, your surname is Dallas. I mean, that's a name to conjure with. That's a place in Scotland. It's a town. It's a teeny tiny town. Very exotic and glamorous name. Believe me, Rundle and Dallas, if you're called Clark, is like the heights of glamour for a surname. I think we should maybe open some kind of legal firm called Rundle, Dallas and Clark. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds Dickensian, weirdly. It does fit all your literary-related needs. The fact that none of us has a law degree might be a problem, although I don't know. Detectives. 
detectives. Yes, Catherine Rundle seems so multi-talented. I think she could do whatever she wants. But it was wonderful to talk to her. But I had a, a really, really nice time in Cambridge, partly because we had a festival earlier in the year that Cambridge has a spring and a winter festival. And spring, like so many festivals, and of course we're seeing some real issues for festivals in their kind of finances. I mean, I mean primarily the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is the latest to kind of say, look, we're having a really hard time. But we were all saying in Cambridge that in spring, you still had that sense of audiences just beginning to come back to live events. And this time, no, it was, everything was really packed. It was absolutely lovely. And I will tell you, if I may, a very heartwarming story. Yes, please. It was absolutely lovely with lots of kids at this festival. And I don't mean at children's events, but children who were coming in to see people who they really, really admired. So I interviewed Nadia Hussein, for example, and mm-hmm. there was a, a tiny little girl in the front row who showed Nadia her pictures of the cakes that she'd made. And it was lovely. I interviewed Esme Young from the Great British Sewing Bee. And my eye was suddenly drawn to, again, a, a young teenager in the front row who clearly made her own dress because it was a fantastic concoction of sort of royal blue netting and petticoats and patterns Mm. and she came but I must say the most wonderful moment was when I was interviewing Hugh Bonneville as we know he's Paddington's dad in Downton etc etc and there were two little girls who I met beforehand who gave me pictures that they had drawn of Paddington and I said well you know what if you give those to me I think I might be able to get Hugh to sign those when we're chatting and they are two little Ukrainian girls who are living in Cambridge with their mom at the moment their dad's still in Ukraine and they sat in the front row and I passed them to Hugh and at the moment when he said how delighted that he found out that Vladimir Zelensky was the voice of Paddington in Ukraine I said well you know we have these these guests these visitors and he held up their pictures for everyone to see and their faces were beyond a picture afterwards they had photographs and it was just wonderful he signed their pictures and he annotated them with little speech bubbles of Paddington roaring and it was just I felt that they were just beside themselves and in fact I saw their mum the next day she was taking photographs she's a wonderful photographer Dasha Tendidna and uh, she was taking photographs at the festival, I saw her the next day and she said they were simply, I mean, she could barely get them to bed. <laughs> yeah, they were just say, so, so excited. So Just anyway, excited was, for the next six months, basically, yes, because exactly. Paddington's dad had drawn on your, oh, how wonderful. Exactly. It was really wonderful. And he did reveal that there will, we hope, be a Paddington in Peru, a third film. Good. Good. What a very eventful and heartwarming weekend you've had. Oh, my goodness, I did. So, Lucy, that's my dispatches. Tell us what's been going on with you and what's in this week's paper. Well, I can tell you what's in this week's paper, because actually the people that we're talking to this week aren't necessarily in this week's paper. But there is lots of wonderful stuff. The lead is a piece by Olivia Lang on Cathy Acker. And Olivia Lang, she based her first novel. What did she say? That the character was a hybrid Frankenstein composite of her and Acker. Yes, Crudo, which was yeah, that sort of novel right. written in kind of almost sort of real time. She wrote it very, very fast, didn't she? And she sort of figured the kind of protagonist as a sort of, it was sort of a mixture of her and Kathy Acker in a way. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's what she was saying. So she's writing about Kathy Acker, which is fascinating. And uh, Declan Ryan is reviewing Daryl Pinkney's memoir, 
which is uh, about Elizabeth Hardwick, or it's not about Elizabeth Hardwick, it's about, it's about his life, but Elizabeth Hardwick figures in it quite a lot. And I think she gets quote of the week, actually. It says here, um, asked by a waiter if she's an actress, Hardwick replies, I have a supporting role in the continuing farce of my life. Brilliant thing to say. I so know how she feels. We though. should all keep that in our back pocket. Yes, quite. Really loads of interesting things in this week's paper. Yes, so do remember to um, subscribe, dear listeners, and then you can read all of these wonderful things. And we have such a starry lineup this week, don't we? We do. We got a bit starstruck, Lucy, you and I, didn't we? I hope we were professional about it, but yes, yes, we did. We did, because in this week's show, we have an interview, as I said, with Catherine Rundle, author of Super Infinite and the winner of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. And we meet Wallace Shawn, actor and playwright extraordinaire, and hear about his new collection of essays. But first, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction has given us some stupendous books to read over the last few years, including Hallie Rubenhold's The Five, Craig Brown's One, Two, Three, Four, and last year, Patrick Radden Keefe's monumental Empire of Pain. Well, this year's prize has just been awarded, and from an exceptional shortlist that ranged from the current refugee crisis to the experiences of a country doctor, the judges unanimously chose Catherine Rundle's Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne. I was delighted to be able to catch up with her ahead of her appearance at the Cambridge Literary Festival and find out more about the book and her reactions to winning this prestigious award. So I'm delighted to be at the Cambridge Literary Festival and I've got opposite me Catherine Rundle, who is kind of well, Catherine, you're laughing to yourself. I mean, I'd be laughing too if I were you and I just won the Bailey Gifford Prize, but you really are giggling. I am still truly stunned by it. I I was more surprised than I think I've ever been in my life by anything. You must have known when you were on the shortlist. I mean, you know, it gives you, you know, the odds are not hard to calculate. But there are different kind of odds that play in your mind, aren't there? And I do think it was just a sensationally good shortlist. I thought it was full of like brilliant, wise, ambitious, bold books. I, I, had, a, I had a cash bet on one of the other books to win. Um, and, and so I have in fact lost money during this entire process. That is bad. <laughs> I, I've got a sort of reasonably confident notion that you may kind of make up some money on, on these <laughs> book sales. I'm very much hoping so, because your book is so wonderful. We feel really, really smug here at the TLS, because uh, in last week's podcast, we were talking about contributors' books of the year, and lots of people had chosen your book, and so we all kind of waxed lyrical about how much I actually said, well, I always have to support anything done related because the done paper really helped me in my finals, you know, a, a hideous amount of time ago, decades ago but I have loved Dunn since a, a, a really young age, and so apparently have you. Tell us what what drew you to write Super Infinite? Why did you want to write about John Dunn? I think when I first fell in love with him, it was in my late teens. Um, I was at university, and he seemed to me to offer something that it's so difficult to do. He was able to hold in one hand both the dread and the joy of living, often in the same poem, often in the same stanza. He, he was a man who 
experienced deep horror in his lifetime. He lived at a time that was a, a strange and vertiginous period of history. He was Catholic at a time when to be Catholic was to be persecuted. He, he had, um, lost a, a brother who died alone in jail, having harbored a priest of plague. He himself perpetually imagined what it would be to commit suicide. He wrote the first full-length treatise on suicide in the English language. He lost six babies. He lost his wife. He lost so much. The bodies piled up around him. He walked haunted. And yet, to read his poetry, and then to read later his sermons and his prose, is to read somebody who is insisting vehemently and vividly, it is an astonishment to be alive. And it behoves you, therefore, with the full force of your willpower and imagination, to be astonished. That might be the most <laughs> sort of impassioned and yet still amazingly kind of succinct uh, uh, summation of, of, of why an author has chosen to write a book. But I mean, you clearly, I mean, you were you, you clearly utterly passionate about him. How did you approach this? Obviously, people have written about Dunn before. I mean, sure, a lot of that is academic work, but actually thinking about a book from many years ago, 84 Charing Cross Road, uh, by the writer, American writer Helene Hamp. You, not a book about Dunn, but a book about her love of Dunn and her relationship with an antiquarian bookseller who would find find editions for her and they would, they would talk about Dunn. So how did you approach writing about him? What did you want to do? This is not, in, in that sense, a conventional biography, is it? So I think it was with real... A mixture of uh, joy and real trepidation and horror. So I, I really struggled with this book. I, one of the reasons that winning really does mean a lot to me is it was a, it was a long haul. I, my PhD took four years. Before that, I'd spent a year in masters working on the sermons, um, and then the book itself was probably four to five years. And I rewrote it and rewrote it. And the first version I wrote was quite academic, and it had it's it, it sort of carried the weight of my research much too heavily and to a point sometimes it felt like I was sort of showing off that I'd done my homework and then it was a question of trying in the rewrite to be really stern with myself about the discipline of not just do you know it but does it matter why would somebody whose time is precious want to know this so it was a kind of active distillation so so throughout the writing process I trying to think of ways that I could offer people the tools to unpick Dunn's poetry. Because really what I want is people to read the book and then go to the poetry and see how it shines. I do think very truly that if you were to read the entirety of Dunn's poetic output and some of the sermons and some of the uh, meditations, it would shift your inner dial a little. It would give you a sense of of what joy might look like, the way he thinks about love, the way he thinks about love as something that can be an answer to a kind of unspoken and unspeakable question. The way he writes about human strangeness, the way he sort of bursts out of the confines of what we think love poetry should be. Mm. You know, there is no truck in his poetry with the uh, my lady is a perfect dove and I shall kneel at her feet. <laughs> you know, ladies are not perfect doves. He, he uses 
wild imagery. You know, one of the ones I love is the remora, which is a, a real fish, but also an ancient sucking fish that used to suck ships down to the bottom of the ocean. He compares a woman's mouth to a remora, and you think, that is not flattering, but it is vivid. <laughs> it is vivid, it and is vivid. also, like, acutely psychological. Yes. And that's one yeah. of the things we find in Dunn, isn't it? Something that really apprehends, you know, before, obviously, kind of modern language that we've had to describe our unconscious and our, our impulses, but does describe what is going on in our inner lives, our desires. Yeah, absolutely that. It feels like he is attempting to distill something of our strangeness, something of the things that leak out without without perhaps our willing, uh, our, not just our willingness, but without our understanding or recognition. He, he sort of, it's like he has put down a suction, suction pump into the subconscious and just hauled up what he found. And I, I think that's why he feels so modern. It was because he was wildly original. And of course, people disliked him for it at the time. Well, I was just yeah. going to ask you, because from what you've said, I mean, you are saying really that you expect and hope indeed people to come to this book who, with very little knowledge of any of them, you, that's, that's your, you know, what to make them the dumb big tent, as it were. Yeah. But what was it like for him when he was published? What, what was the reaction at the time? So, of course, he wasn't really published. He was mostly sort of disseminated through, mm. like, um, yes. manuscripts. So, so it wasn't really for the public, but it became public because he would send it to friends who would send it to others and there would be a kind of ripple effect. So that by the time he was in his middle life, he was one of the most copied and known poets of the Renaissance. And there were those who thought that he was remarkable. And there were those like Ben Johnson who said, done for not keeping his accent deserved hanging. Um, and there were a lot of people who felt that by breaking the rules of sort of poetic, the kind of monovocality of the poetic canon, that he was doing something a bit gross and a bit embarrassing and a bit scandalous and a bit uncomfortable. Um, people, poetry had such primacy at the time. And if you broke from the confines in the way he did, it made people wary of. Yes. Who were, the, who were the poets who he was sort of, as it were, kind of breaking away from? Mm. I mean, what would people read at that time and think, OK, this is proper poetry and what's he doing mm. over there? So I think some of the, the best images would be someone like Walter Riley is really helpful to think mm -hmm. about because, of course, mm -hmm. he was participating deeply in like court tradition. Yes. And his love poetry, often addressed to Queen Elizabeth, is very much of the... I'm going to rhyme rose and suppose. Um, <laughs> and, and Philip Sidney would be another. Philip Sidney um, compares, he writes this poem, a sort of courtly Belizean tradition, mm. where he compares a woman's shoulders are unto two white doves. And then another one of his poems, her cheeks are unto two white doves. And you do at some point feel like, other birds are available, my friend. <laughs> um, but, but these traditions of summoning up a kind of Petrarchan innocence and a kind of distancing from the body and done brought the body and the soul and the mind to collide with such joy um, he he was the one who wrote one might almost say her body thought um, his sense of our kind of coherence and his sense that sex might in some ways be miraculous you know all language and all words or something, and all language, I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was. Um, he had an idea that when two bodies meet, it is a kind of salute to the human living infinitely. And does this explain 
why, for in his work, we think of it as love poetry, we also think of it as religious poetry, mm. we also sometimes think of it as political poetry. It seems that those divisions actually didn't really work like that. Exactly. For that. him. They, they coalesce so deeply in his work. And of course, he never wrote any love sonnets. He kept mm. the sonnet form, the traditional form for courtship, for his writings about God and about death. Mm. And of course, the famous ones, Death Be Not Proud, um, and this kind of batter my soul, free person, God, where he uses martial and violent imagery to talk about the idea, which he comes to again and again in his sermons, that he wants to be swept up by the totality of understanding and of love of God, and he can't because he is human. There's that wonderful sermon that I think so many people find moving and is truly remarkable for the time, for the vulnerability it expresses from the pulpit, where he says, I summon God and my angels, and when they are here, I neglect them for the sound of a fly or a straw under my knee and nothing as something, a chimera. This idea that his thoughts are not in his control and yet, of course, he wrote some of the most controlled and difficult poetry that anyone has ever written. And I, I mean, there is that. an extreme sort of understanding of the, the form, isn't there? I mean, evidently, we've been focusing on the sort of, I don't know, I suppose the emotional truth mm. of the way that he makes language. Um, you sort of dance to his tune, as it were, but that comes by a very controlled, yeah. um, poetic exercise of, of, of poetic power. Absolutely. And of course, he would have been part of a culture that was used to experimenting with poetic form and to writing within the confines of poetic form from a very young age. They would have been composing poetry at, um, he didn't go to school, but um, while he was in the sort of school ages. Um, he had staggering intellectual discipline. Uh, his capacity for working within, within very complex structure of poetry and indeed later of prose patience it must have taken, you know, the amount of time. You don't get the impression with Dunn that what you're looking at is someone who saw a beautiful flower and went home and wrote a poem about it. It will have taken his focus and his care and his generosity, and it is asking for yours in return as you unpick what he has laid out. Catherine, I, uh, you know, sold. I'm sold. <laughs> I, I, thank you so much for talking to us about that. Listen, I want to ask you uh, about, oh my goodness, you wanted to come to write about Dunn, this person you've been obsessed with. You came to it, it was sort of via writing children's books, prize-winning children's books. You wrote a book called The Golden Mole about <laughs> endangered species. Um, I mean, what's going on here? Do you just feel, <laughs> are you a restless imagination? Was it all building up to Dunn? What's the story? I would argue, um, this is a theory I'm making up right now. I think there's a continuity between them, which is they're all about attention. So Dunn, in one of his final sermons, why are the poems so difficult? Because he wants your attention and your focus and your he wants the full of your brain. He wants you to know how thinking hard and well and with a kind of iron-willed passion is a pleasure akin to sex. So he wants your attention. One of his sermons, he writes about the idea, he says, does any man sleep between Tyburn and Newgate, between the place of imprisonment and the place of execution? No man sleeps in the cart on that journey, and yet we spend our entire lives asleep, he says, awake. This idea of being alive to the 
to like the richness of the world. And the Golden Mole, which is um, essays about animals and about their history and their biology, also has a kind of hope that you might offer them your attention and thereby your political attention, your galvanic active attention that you might realize perhaps the thing we all know, but you might be reminded of it. What does the world ask of you more than we have yet been willing to give? And I think the children's books are similar. They are offering children a kind of sense that the world that is stretched out around you is staggering and it deserves your focus and your care and your watch. And, and yes, it's frightening. The, the book's also about it's frightening to be brave and it's frightening to pay attention to the world. And in one of them, the explorer, when they crash land in the Amazon Jane Forest, the explorer says to them, you're completely right to be afraid. It would be mad not to be. Be brave anyway. So funny, would, this week, uh, when you won the prize, Tess Gunty uh, won the National Book Award, won a National mm. Book Award for her book, um, a novel, first novel, The Rabbit Hutch, which is set in a low-income housing community in Indiana. And when she was, you know, accepting her award, she said, attention is the most important thing we can give them. And to hear that sort of echo between young women who have written books on vastly different subjects, but we seem to understand that we are in partly an attention economy. You grabbed the world's attention when you won this prize. I'm sorry you lost money uh, <laughs> betting on another. I, I, I'm just gather. I'm guessing you're not going to tell me who you bet on, are you? I I bet on one of my favourite books for many years, which was Sally Hayden's The Fourth Time uh -huh. I thought it was a sensational book. Um, and she's part of the reason, so I... I'm, I'm giving half of the prize money to a refugee charity and half of the prize money to a climate change charity, and she is part of the reason that I am giving half of it to the refugee charity. The way she writes about that crisis is so powerful. It's a book that I would urge everyone to read. And you're giving the other, as you say, to, to a climate crisis charity. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. Um, it's called Blue Ventures, and it works with um, a, a huge number of communities around the world uh, trying to build a more sustainable way of living, but also climate um, communities affected by climate mm. change. Um, David Attenborough is one of their trustees, and it's a, a truly brilliant charity. Um, Catherine, uh, wait, I asked Catherine, listeners, uh, uh, just before we started, I want to be absolutely sure I said her surname <laughs> correctly, and I said, was it Rundell, Rumble, <laughs> and you said Rumble, and you said it is a... a Corruption, that was sort of a distortion of the French word for swallow, hirondelle. Exactly. Uh, and uh, it seems there may be a tiny bit of nominative determinism <laughs> here in a very kind of, you know, uh, sort of modified way. Uh, but you, you do want to feel in tune with the world that you're describing around you. You do seem to me to go kind of so fleetly through it in your writing. It's a truly amazing book, but it would be an invidious task to imagine what you're going to do next, given this sort of extraordinary hopping that you've done. Do you have an idea? Well, I, um, I have a children's book out next year that I've been working on for so long. It's called Impossible Creatures, and it's fantasy, and it's about... It's like a chanted archipelago where all the creatures of myth live and breathe and thrive, not just 
unicorns and centaurs and dragons, although also those, but the creatures of myth that we have largely forgotten about, that we wrote in about into 14th century bestiaries around the world in China. Like and the remoras. Right, exactly, remoras. Uh-huh. Are, and almirages, which are sort of horned hares, and carcadans, which are like evil unicorns that eat people, and um, ratatoskas, which are a sort of squirrel-like thing, which uh, gossips and has a little horn and is green. And it's a place where you can go and encounter this kind of wild cornucopia of living things. So that is the next book. That's the next book. We'll look out for it. But mm. I can't commend that super enough. It's just amazing. Thank you so much for finding time to come and talk to us. Um, thank you, Catherine Rundle. Thank you so much. That was Catherine Rundle, author of Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, the winner of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Still to come on the show, our dinner with Andre, or rather, our chat with the wonderful Wallace Shawn. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, we are delighted to welcome someone this week whose name and voice will be recognised by all you dear listeners, I don't doubt, on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond, Wallace Shawn. As an actor, he starred in more films than we could name, so I'm going to be wildly partisan, mention two of my favourites, which are also very literary ones, Princess Bride and Clueless. As a playwright and dramatist, he's the author of a number of works, including My Dinner with Andre, a radical, theatrical and highly influential film, which was directed by Louis Malle. He's also an essayist, and his most recent book, Sleeping Among Sheep Under a Starry Sky, is a collection of essays ranging from 1985 to 2021. And he's here to talk about this book with us. Many thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. I'd like to start right at the beginning, if I may. You open your book with a story about your first theatrical experience. I think the book is probably named for it. Can you tell us about it and why it was so formative? Well, I do begin the book with uh, being five years old and being cast as a shepherd in uh, a Christmas pageant at my school and having the experience of. pretending to be asleep with my sheep and being awakened and led by that wonderful star to the manger where little Jesus was sleeping. I put this in the book because although I've always been interested in political things and the book is largely about political things, I can't deny that uh, there's been an irrational attraction to uh, make believe 
as we say. I don't know if you would ever use that phrase, but we we do it. we do use that phrase, yeah. And uh, I don't know; it seemed appropriate to admit that. And I have to admit, you know, to uh, being an actor, and um, I myself thinking privately about myself and who cares. I think of myself as a writer and even a kind of fake intellectual. You know, I have a lot of vanity about having studied. Well, I read PPE at Maudlin, and uh, I have a lot of pretensions about myself. Very, very pretentious. <laughs> but I did become an actor as well as a writer. I was a writer first, and I've continued to be a writer, but my writing is not very well liked. and. Uh, my acting has, you know, amused people. So most people see me as an actor and it seemed appropriate to begin the book with my first acting experience and my first theater experience because I have really devoted my life to theater, even though my theater work has a lot of it with Andre Gregory, with whom I've worked for 45 years or something like that, uh, more, I suppose. That isn't very well known, although we've made some movies that, that people have seen. So that's how I began. Can I ask you about that world of theatre? Because you talk about, about being in the world of theatre. You say it's a very small world and that when you began writing your plays, you said there, was, there wasn't much agreement about what made good theatre at that point. So I'm going to quote you here. An evening of expressionist theatre could be angrily denounced because it lacked the qualities of a Broadway musical. So you felt able to just kind of experiment however you wanted, to present whatever you wanted. There was a lot of freedom there, was there? Well, theatre, at least, I don't know, I've always thought of it, at least in my country, as having no real... Uh, how can I, I mean, this is an insulting thing to say, but, you know, I'm almost dead anyway, so I'll say it. It has <laughs> low, low standards or no standards exactly. You make up your own standards. Now, in a field like, let's say, playing the violin, there are some pretty agreed upon standards. In a field even like uh, painting, there, of course, used to be very rigid standards, but theater, you know, I think I'm slightly being ironic in saying that I went into theater because I thought I could get away with anything, but there's some truth to it. I think what I was talking about when I mentioned the expressionist plays being judged by the standards of a Broadway musical, I was referring to the fact that in the theaters where I had my plays done initially at any rate, this is in the United States, the audience is made up of subscribers to theater. They pay for the year in advance and they go to see five or six plays. Oh, I see. So they don't say, oh, I've seen a poster for this. I want to see this one because I like this writer or I've heard about this. You just go because you've got a subscription. Exactly. And you're hoping, mm. most of the people are hoping it'll be a delightful musical. And when <laughs> it turns out to be a nauseating play by me, they're disappointed. I mean, no, they didn't sign up for that. 
they're very sad and unhappy. So that was sort of the beginning of my theater life. And then I did come to England and do all my plays in England as well as in the United States. And there I had a better experience, to be absolutely frank, because at a place like the Royal Court, when I was there, people knew that it would be, you know, a contemporary play written by a contemporary writer. It's probably going to be vaguely serious and it might even deal with modern life and the problems of our world and people are not horrified. And even if something is a little bit bizarre, they can take it because they sort of mm. signed up for that. They're willing to take a bizarre play among a few other plays. That's how I felt when I first worked with Joint Stock and the Royal Court. Well, the Royal Court is still pretty much like that, actually. That's a fairly accurate description. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I was really interested in the book. I mean, we've been talking about your different roles and identities throughout your, your life and your career, but I was so interested in the way that you seem to notice and to write about how they reflected on one another. So, for example, in your an essay that you wrote about how you got into the theatre, you ask what theatre is and you say theatre is surely it's a way of putting a frame around a picture of society. And it also seems to reflect on what you think of as the self, as the I who is doing the observing. And you, you talk about art as a way for us to process irrationality after we have perhaps processed things more rationally. There seems to be a continuum, I suppose, is what I'm saying or asking you, between these different parts of your identity and the way that you express yourself. Is that right? Wow, it would be great if that could be true. I mean, I'm pretty confused about it, but if you read the book and put the pieces together into an individual human being, I'm quite excited. <laughs> well, I, I did. I mean, for a start, you started off, you say, I didn't ask to be an individual. And it seems to be a lot of the meditations, obviously, these are essays from throughout your writing career, they're from very different times, and they're about often very different things. But you really seem to be reflecting on the tension between the individual and what he or she prioritizes for themselves and the collective. I mean, that seems to be a sort of underpinning idea that you go back to when you're thinking about politics and society. Well, I think it uh, does come up an awful lot that uh, I know myself as a selfish and grasping entity who wakes up wanting things, uh, including even material things. And on the other hand, I'm carrying around a brain that has the ability to observe that uh, the way the world is organized is disgustingly wrong. I mean, I don't really believe in a society based on hierarchy with an elite and with serfs or slaves or people who have absolutely no prospects. I don't believe in that, but I live in it. And not only do I live in it, I wake up every day as one of those creatures who happens to be 
in the privileged elite and who is hungry for a delicious breakfast and is capable of getting one. So my brain is going back and forth between how much I want the breakfast that costs a certain amount of money and my awareness that the whole system in which I'm eating the breakfast is one that I find sickening. I don't believe in the class system. I don't believe that certain people are born stupid and should not be given a good education. I don't believe that. I think babies are probably all born quite smart and could easily study PPE at Maudlin as I had the opportunity to do. And in this question of the divided, there is this kind of idea of a divided self, or rather, I suppose, as Alex was saying, as the self versus the part of the community. You talk about morality and how to think about it, and you seem to be reluctant or find it difficult or impossible to amalgamate the two or to compromise, or maybe you think it's not possible. Amalgamate which two? The one that wakes up wanting breakfast and the one that, you know, believes in equality for everybody. Let's put it this way. I don't know how to, uh, I don't even say I don't know. I mean, I would say I have not done the things that I could have done to eliminate that grasping self. I mean, it is entirely possible for people to give away any money that they make. And it's also possible for people to give up love, human relationships, and try to learn how not to strive, as the Buddhists would perhaps recommend, and to, you know, not to desire anything. But that doesn't really attract me as an ideal. If I were creating the universe from scratch, I think I would like people to love and desire. And um, I don't think I would want people to all live in monasteries, but I do think I would want, you know, some kind of social change that would uh, lead to, I don't even, the word equality is not so much the point, but uh, the possibility of everybody being able to have a decent life and to develop their talents instead of the world that we have now, where by the time, you know, a child is two years old, they've been tossed into a category one way or the other, privileged or unprivileged. And uh, if they're unprivileged, they're considered not as bright as the privileged people, and they're not given as good an education, and their opportunities in life are limited if they have any opportunities. This is a theme that you come back to. I mean, in the very first essay in the book, which was written in 2001, after the destruction of the World Trade Center, and you write it in the form of a letter from the United States to what you call the foreign policy therapist and the policy therapists reply in which they say, well, what's needed here is a radical readjustment. Those are the words that you use, but it's necessary over decades. I mean, that's a, an essay from 20 years ago. 
I mean, do you even, I wonder, think that that radical readjustment is in sight? Do you think it's begun or do you feel that things are just the same or even even worse than they were 20 years ago? Well, they're certainly worse. They're obviously worse in many ways because there's a, a sort of more open worship of pure idiocy in my country. Maybe there's even a little bit of it in your country. I think we can say there is a little bit of it in our country as well. Yeah, we're not immune to that ourselves. Yeah. So that is a sort of, I would say, a true development. And of course, what has been exposed in the 20 years is that even when faced with this terrible challenge that the planet is becoming uninhabitable and that we can see what's going to happen and it's already happening, somehow people have not been able to get together to try to stop the climate catastrophe. You know, you'd think that would have been something that would have brought people together and you know, God help us. I mean, maybe it still can, but the evidence so far is that, uh, you know, the oil company executives still want their profits and they buy the politicians and a large proportion of certainly the American public is actually, uh, you know, willing to turn a blind eye to the fact that the planet may become uninhabitable. They're in thrall to those oil company executives and the politicians whom they've bought, and they're dazzled by ridiculous ideas of racism that people like Trump dangle in front of them to distract them. Well, we speak to you on the day that Trump has declared his third candidacy. I mean, that must be a very dispiriting moment. Well, it's a little tiny bit ambiguous because his most devoted followers didn't all win in the local elections for our Congress. He was not as successful in supporting his biggest followers as he'd expected to be. So there's a little ambiguity there. I mean, I would say that his control of the Republican Party, which was sort of absolute at one point, and it was just absolutely certain that that party would join the ranks of the European extreme right-wing parties, it was dealt a bit of a blow by the recent elections. But it's, you know, who knows? We'll soon find out. But it's a pretty extraordinary thing that one of our two parties, because we only have two parties, really, that are strong, one of them is really absolutely like a, a European or East European uh, fascist party. Hard to believe. Given, I mean, sort of all of that that you've just laid out, and particularly the climate and the, the you know, loss of habitat and a wildlife, well, just life, actually, animal life, but life generally. Do you think that your 
area, the theatre, the, let's say the creative arts, because you talk about when you were little, what you'd like to do was, you know, you play, it's writing things down on bits of paper and playing with colour and things like that. And now this is what the creative arts is doing. Do you think the creative arts can do something about it, make a difference, change anybody's minds, open up anyone's potential? Well, let's put it this way. If I were speaking to an artist who said to me, I think my paintings or my play will have a big influence on the way the world develops from now on, I would be scoffing and laughing. But I actually do think that uh, artistic work is good for the brain of the people who experience it. I mean to say, I think that, uh, you know, if you read poetry or go to a play that is, uh, you know, an intelligently written play, I think it increases your intelligence. And I think that even to go to um, see a wild, abstract painting, it benefits the brain of the person who sees it if it is a really good painting. So I do think that uh, we need to think our way out of crises. And I think that uh, artistic things can play that role. Also, I think that people do have obsessions. And uh, I say this in a couple of the essays in the book, or I probably put it better, that uh, people who are obsessed, for instance, with supremacy or with military conquest or with nationalism are uh, preoccupied and obsessed with a particular topic. And if they were preoccupied and obsessed instead with, you know, studying the, I don't know, the the paintings of Agnes Martin, they wouldn't be obsessed with supremacy and competition and uh, military conquest and nationalism. So I think that in a way, art can lure people away from more brutal forms of obsession. That is a wonderful way to put it. Basically, while you're sitting at the theatre, you're not doing something unspeakable to somebody else. <laughs> apart from anything else. There are so many fascinating essays here. There's also two interviews, a long interview with, with the poet Mark Strand and one, too, with Noam Chomsky. There's a wonderful essay called Writing About Sex in which you reveal that you started writing about sex at 14. There's another in which you, you wonder whether the role of the theatrical talent is, is a kind of pastry chef in an elite restaurant. Uh, and I just found it so immensely, immensely enjoyable. But we should perhaps talk about for a minute the final essay, Night Thoughts, which is such an interesting essay because it's sort of, I suppose it takes as its inspiration the fact that when you lie at night, your mind can run over all sorts of things and yours does in this essay. Yes, it's sort of a cubist or fragmented view of everything that I think and believe. I mean, I did write it sort of thinking, you know, frankly, and people I suppose can tell from my voice, I'm over 70, over <laughs> 70. 
way over. And uh, I did sort of think, oh, well, either I'll be dead soon or my brain will not be working as I would like it to. And so I want to put everything down, everything that I really believe. And uh, that's how that, and to speak to people like me, I mean, I have had a privileged life and quite a bit of the essay is directed to people who are not hungry. Well, thank you so much. I think we're out of time, sadly. I will just commend this book of essays enormously to the listeners. But I'm also going to say, Lucy, because you got yours in at the beginning, you said what your favourite films were that Wally had made. And I have to put my own vote in for the marvellous Vanya on 42nd Street, which uh, was written by Andre Gregory, who we've mentioned. Well, I think it was written by Chekhov and, and translated by David Mamet. It, Andre directed it. And then Louis Mal directed the movie. It's kind of complicated. I mention it really because it so, uh, for me, brings up that idea that it opened that play up for me. I guess that's what I'm saying in a way that you say, you know, seeing things in a different context, a different way can open things up. But that's my bit of fangirling. <laughs> Hand back to you, Lucy. Oh, I'm afraid all we can say is thank you so much for helping us what was the phrase you used helping us to open up our intelligence if we can manage it but we <laughs> very much appreciate talking to you about your wonderful book thank you for joining us thanks so much thank you all we have time for this week our thanks go to Catherine Rundle and Wallace Sean and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.